Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's installment of the Dead Pundit Society. My name is Adam Proctor. I'm your host as usual. Joining me on this week's show is Matt Bruinig. He is starting a new grassroots crowd-funded policy think tank for the left. So put on your Wongcats. We're going to get down with the nitty-gritty of policy and politics. Stay tuned. Welcome, everybody, to this week's show. I presume that many of you will be coming to this show for the first time. We are a relatively new podcast, and Matt Bruinig has quite a few followers on Twitter and social media. So many of you will be coming to the show for the first time. So by way of a a quick introduction, this is the Dead Pundit Society. I started this podcast a few months ago trying to forge a new left agenda. This, This particular episode is a fantastic example of exactly the type of initiative that we'd like to take on here. Last week's episode, I had on Jane McAlevey, who is a union organizer extraordinaire, to talk about the militant tactics needed to revive the trade union movement in the United States. This episode, in many senses, is a, is a logical follow-up uh, to that episode last week. If you haven't heard it, by all means, go to my SoundCloud or iTunes and, and check that out uh, with Jane McAlevey. Because this week we're going to be talking about uh, the flip side of the coin of our low-wage, low-union-density economy. While Matt and I did not directly discuss the sort of 800-pound gorilla sitting in the corner of the room, which is the low-wage economy, uh, we both recognize that this is a central element to shaping the, the welfare state today. In many cases, most of the workers that are on some type of welfare assistance have part-time jobs, and in some cases, they have full-time jobs. Uh, And yet, as we have uh, become all too familiar with uh, from workplaces like Walmart and elsewhere, a lot of these folks don't earn enough hourly wage to make a living. Uh, So they go to their, their employee public relations departments and their workplaces, and they find applications for food stamps. And other types of, you know, uh, welfare benefits. So in essence, what's happening here is the federal and state government uh, are subsidizing the low wages of these employees. So by extension, the federal government is subsidizing the profits of these major corporations and and the profits of the shareholders as well. Now, it doesn't take a policy wonk to figure out that this structure is highly irrational, although I do have one on the show today. We have to continue to fight for high wages, union power in the workplace, in order to overturn this highly corrupt and inequitable system. But nevertheless, given the neoliberal hellscape is not going anywhere anytime soon, we need to build robust, even muscular defenses of the welfare system. And that's exactly what my guest sets out to do. Matt Bruinig is a policy wonk. Uh, he has been at places, uh, think tanks like Demos and elsewhere, writing policy papers for politicians and for the uh, you know a public audience as well. And he recently announced last week that he was going to start a crowdfunded think tank 
for left-wing perspectives on welfare policy. And I immediately reached out to him to have him on the show because I think this is a really important project. In essence, on my show, we talk a lot about how to build left-wing power. But, you know, one way to look at this in the impasse that we face on the left is that, like, if we could snap our fingers and, and come to power tomorrow, what kind of policies would we deliver to the people in order to help the, the folks who need it the most? And the, the sad reality about that is we don't really have a lot of ready-made answers. I mean, I think we have sort of general platitudes, but we don't have a lot of ready-made answers. And I think we really need to do a lot better. So Matt Bruinig is starting a think tank in order to rectify this gap in our intellectual apparatus uh, on the left in terms of how to fix the problems that we face. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to mention this throughout the interview, but just to sort of front load it. This is typically the place where I, I sort of pitch my own Patreon, and by all means, if you want to support the show, check out my Patreon at uh, www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and support the show if you can. But this week, I'm going to ask folks to do something a little bit different, and that is go to Patreon and support Matt Bruinig's Think Tank. Uh, you can find that at patreon.com slash Bruinig. Or you can just Google search Matt Bruinig Patreon and you'll find the page that way. It's already gotten a fair amount of support, but you know if he's going to really fund a think tank and bring on some other uh, you know like-minded folks to produce policy and educate the public about these policies, he's going to need a lot more scratch than the fair amount that he's already ginned up. So you know for this week, uh, I'll ask folks you know if you if you want to open up your pockets and support the project. Check out Matt Bruinig's Patreon. Fund it, support it. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders' campaign uh, demonstrated the power of crowdfunding and producing independent left-wing messages. And I think Matt Bruinig can take that sort of strategy a long way and help us out in the process. So yeah, support Matt Bruinig's think tank. I'm sure he appreciates it. I know I appreciate it. I believe in the mission. I wouldn't have had him on the show if I didn't. As a little segue before the interview, I'm going to offer about a minute and a half clip from an excellent PBS special on the realities of the welfare system today. It opens up with a woman talking about the difficulties she has securing the social welfare benefits to which she's entitled. It's a real nightmare. It started with Clinton's ending welfare as we know it. For those of you who don't have a lot of this history under your belt, I recommend you go back and read about it. It's really horrifying. The indignities that people have to go through just to feed themselves and their children. So without further ado, following this brief clip, you'll hear my interview with Matt Bronick. Enjoy. The wait is crazy there, like almost three to four hours. Three to four hours. Minimum to just go like into the office. In Boston, 24-year-old Ashley Murphy Single mother of a boy, four, and girl, one, she's been on welfare since 2013, would do anything to get off. I feel like they kind of look down on you in a way. Murphy is now in a privately funded career training class, hoping to get a job in nursing and off welfare, which she's on because she quit her last job in retail. And why'd you quit? I was working there for over two years, and I just got $9 an hour. And how many hours did you get in a typical week? It decreased to like four to eight hours a week. You were only getting four to eight hours a week at $9 an hour. And paid every two weeks. Well, you obviously can't live on that. Thus, it was welfare for Murphy. But to get welfare, you have to work. 
As of the 1996 welfare-to-work law passed over skepticism from liberals by Republican Congress with support from President Bill Clinton. When I ran for president four years ago, I pledged to end welfare as we know it. And so he did. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me today is Matt Bruning. Matt is a writer and researcher. He studies poverty, inequality, and welfare systems. I'm not much of a wonk, so I brought uh, Matt on to explain all these things to you folks today. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Glad you could be on the show. So I wanted to start off with a, a recent uh, news piece that's coming up here in about a week. It's this Ideas Conference. Have you, you've heard of this. So the Center for American Progress is putting on this conference. I have. I read the Politico piece about it. So Yeah, so right now we have uh, Elizabeth Warren is signed on, Cory Booker, uh, those types of folks, Chris Murray, Kamala Harris, uh, some more up-and-comers like Montana Governor Steve Bullock, L.A. Mayor uh, Eric Garcetti. So what do you make of this conference? Uh, Neera Tandon, uh, Center for American Progress president, is kind of at the head of this thing. What do you think the aim here is to try to capture some of the, uh, the Bernie energy for, for the mainstream or what? Well, my understanding is that there weren't a lot of Bernie people invited to it, so right. I don't think that that can be the likely purpose of it. Um, mm-hmm. The political article said it might be the it could be the CPAC of the left, um, right. but that doesn't make sense either because the CPAC is a is a youth conference, mm-hmm. uh, and this is not a youth <laughs> conference. So, quite um, the obvious, uh, quite the opposite, rather. You might argue this is this is the uh, older wing of the party, if you will, with no ageist uh, sort of uh, connotations intended. Right, exactly. I, I mean, that's just how the politics uh, uh, lay out, is it tends towards the older edge of things. So I have not been able to figure out what the point of it is exactly. Um, it's also not even clearly an ideas conference <laughs> in the sense that, you know, I don't know, like TED Talks or Aspen Ideas, you know, people come up, they, it, it just is sort of a gathering of center-left power players. So Right, not even so much think Thinkfluencers, as much as just kind of, uh, I don't know, Muppets, you know, who sort of get on stage and dance for the highest bidder. Right. I mean, politicians are not the people who generate ideas. They are the, you know, embodiment and implementer of ideas. So it, it doesn't make sense to have them, you know, they're like racking their brains coming up with, with policy thoughts. That's, that's not really where those policies come from. So it's, it's a little confusing. Right. It, it does seem to me that they're trying to capitalize on some of the energy coming out of the Bernie Sanders campaign, even if they are sort of cynically wielding it for their own mainstream establishment purposes. Here's a quote from a friend of the show and certainly a great friend of yours, uh, Neera Tandon, uh, who's talking about the conference in, a, in a, a piece from The Hill. She says, there's a level of energy out there that I haven't seen, and it's not our role to pick winners and losers, <laughs> except, except that when it is, Right. So here's Center for American Progress uh, head near Tandon saying, you know, it's not our role to pick winners and losers, except when we're rigging uh, the Democratic uh, Party primary, I guess, right? Right. So, well, does she say, when, who is our in that sentence, I guess? Oh, we, we know who our is. But that, I guess that's like, <laughs> I, don't, there, there's, I, don't, I feel like a Freudian psychoanalyst would have a ball with that statement. I mean, in all of her statements, for God's sakes. It's kind of like, you know, me thinks the lady doth protest too much. Uh, right. Well, and the the absurd thing about it is, 
I don't have any problem with you trying to win with your people. It's this weird sure. even-handedness where you pretend to be even-handed and then, you know, are actually putting thumbs on scales. That That's really the more perverse situation than just being boldly, you know, I have my people, I have my politics, and I'm going to try to push them through the party. That that seems basically what you should be doing to me, but they, they try to kind of obscure uh, how they act for some reason. That's right. And speaking of, you know, this the fact that maybe this probably won't be much of an ideas conference at all. I mean, Nancy Pelosi has come out and said, you know, he's taken a single payer off the table right from the get go in terms of 2018. So if we're if we're not even going to consider some of the more popular ideas circulating on the liberal left right now, then I don't know, you know, what, what are we even doing? Wasting our time, I guess. Twiddling our thumbs, patting ourselves on the back. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I when it came out, I tweeted that, uh, how are they going to fill all this space with tax credit ideas? Because that seems to be the only... <laughs> the only thing that is okay at this point in time, I mean, if you're knocking off like single payer and free college and all that Bernie stuff, it's just tax, you know, more generous child tax credit or something like that. It's the only thing that's left. So I want to talk about that in earned income tax credit here uh, later on in in the interview, but we'll skip ahead. So, you know, you you mentioned uh, something very salient to what I want to talk about in terms of how these think tankers sort of function where, they act like, you know, we're putting these sort of, you know, interesting, exciting, and novel ideas out there, but in reality, they're pushing through this agenda. Um, it, it, it's fairly obvious what they're doing to, to any, uh, you know, semi-enlightened commentator, but this really hit the fan with you recently in, in your arguments around civility. And this kind of gets to the more philosophical element of what I'd like to talk about to you today, which is kind of like, okay, what is the policy platform for the left going forward? And your work is so interesting, I think, because you touch on that philosophical note where you say that, like, on the one hand, you have a Nicholas Kristof, right, somebody you've gone after, or a David Brock, uh, these conservative pundits, who argue for a certain, you know, vision of civility in the press while they're trashing mothers and children on welfare. Um, And it sort of hides a more insidious form of violence. Maybe talk a little bit about how that influences your your thought process on welfare systems. Right. So our public debate in the U.S. around welfare benefits and poverty and inequality in general is on its face very offensive in the sense that if you were to say a lot of the things that are okay to publish about those topics – to poor people, to their face, mm-hmm. they would be very, uh, you know, made very embarrassed and humiliated, and you know, they might punch you or something like that. Sure, like, sure. Um, and you know, I don't mind if I, I'm not someone who says you, you know, you need to hold off on making those statements just because it might, you know, upset them. But um, there's a double standard where. On the one hand, you can write pieces about how uh, poor single mothers are, you know, welfare dependents, mooches, uh, lazy, don't care about their children, their own success, etc. Uh, but if I turn around and, and take a shot at you about, you know, your personal life or <laughs> something like that, uh, that's uh, that's incivil or uncivil, but that's you crossing know. the line of civility, sir. You know? Right, right. Yeah. So let's Even talk about let's talk about Ezra Klein. Let's make it concrete. 
Uh, okay. In some recent times, you've, you've kind of gone at Ezra Klein. So tell us who Ezra Klein is and what your criticism was of his approach, uh, his not-so-wonkish or his, uh, his pseudo-wonkish embarrassment uh, of, of late. Well, so I, I assume you're talking about a, pe- a piece I wrote maybe three years ago. Uh, yeah, it was some years ago now, maybe yeah. 2013. Yeah, he was still at Wonk Blog at the time, and yeah. he just wrote a post. Obama had said, inequality is the defining issue of our time. And he wrote a, a post that was like, actually... Well, actually, yeah. He was actually wearing a fedora and stroking his neck beard uh, as he was writing the piece. Actually, unemployment is. Um, and, you know, what upsets me about pieces that... What upset me about the piece was that for many topics on, on the left, if, if you were to... You, you wouldn't butt in like that and say, no, actually, I don't think that's that important. I think there are other things that are more important. (laughs) Um, So, like, for instance, uh, let's take campus sexual assaults. Campus sexual assaults are obviously horrific. The stories, you read them, they're very frequent. If you look at the statistics, it's very bad. But you could, I suppose, if you wanted to be just the biggest jackass ever, be like, is that really as big a deal as you know, mass unemployment or uh, poverty in Appalachia. Like, you could do that, um, but no one ever would. And if you did do that, you would just get absolutely lit up and, you know, there might be career consequences or whatever. Um, But... but that similar kind of sanctioning that tells you, don't, don't do that. What are you doing? That's ridiculous. Uh, why even go down that road? Uh, doesn't apply, it seems, in issues of inequality and class. People are willing to talk about their mm-hmm. relative importance. And his piece did that, and I kind of you know, hit back at him for, for, I don't know, that sort of double standard when it comes to class, um, as well as the specifics of how he went about proving his point, which was kind of ridiculous in its own right. Right. And so you touched on something in 2013 that we're still seeing that's alive and well today following the election of Trump, which is that the only form of bigotry that's really still allowed out in the open in, re- in the respectable mainstream press is a sort of class hatred, the sort of bigotry of, of the poors, right? Uh, you see this in J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy and these other types of approaches to Trump voters, you know, f- celebrating the fact that they're about to lose their health care and the AHCA and all the other sort of disgusting takes from the Vox sect and so on. That's true. Yeah. L- liberals are comfortable trashing lower class whites and Republicans are comfortable trashing lower class blacks and Latinos. And in many ways, the way they trash one another is very similar <laughs> if you look right, at it right. uh tacky uh jobless uh whatever um and yeah that seems to be the only thing that you can kind of throw out there and and not face just enormous social sanction from uh, you know the masses in saying don't do that though of course people do get mad from time to time and tweet about you know, a piece that says they're happy that Trump voters are losing minor benefits and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's still something that get, can get past an editor at a liberal publication, whereas many other similar kinds of trashing of, of vulnerable and marginalized people wouldn't be able to get past an editor. So, Right. So 
Going back to your your uh, critical piece of David Brooks from some years ago. David Brooks is uh, the the sort of logo. Zombie David Brooks is my logo for the Dead Pundit Society. So I have a special uh, hate in my heart for this man. Uh, but you write, would David Brooks ever stand in front of a poor, divorced, single mother and say to her the shit he writes in columns about her? There is no way in hell. Why? Because that would be disrespectful and uncivil. Unless, of course, you do it in print and publish it out to the whole world, at which point it is just an opinion and respectable policy view. So, yeah, there's this weird way in which like publishing things to millions of people across the whole world sort of depersonalizes what are actually incredibly personal um, and, and dire stakes in, in people's actual lives. Yeah, that's the pr- I mean, that is probably if you're to try to come up with a neutral explanation of why people are okay with some kinds of incivility and not others, it's really just about how directly interpersonal it is. If I say, David Brooks, you apparently left your wife for a younger woman, uh, you know, people <laughs> will say, whoa, what, you know, that's really, a, you know, that's low too blow, far. Man. Yeah. Even though he made a career, you know, uh, trashing the moral character of people right. who end but up if divorced. He, and yeah, poor. if he essentially makes the same point about uh, women not marrying, you know, having children out of wedlock and being, you know, not family oriented or whatever, a similar kind of point, but directed to a whole mass of tens of millions of people in the U.S., then it's, it's not as big a deal because it's, it's less interpersonal. Um, so... Right, and you shared elsewhere, so I hope I'm not asking you to open up too much. You shared elsewhere that your own personal experience of, of living with poverty, or at least on social assistance. Uh, to what extent do you think this uh, paints your, your research here and, and the way you sort of personalize this and, and understand the stakes for, your, for folks like yourself? Yeah, so on the specific question of being comfortable, I guess on the specific question of getting kind of pissed off enough at these posts, <laughs> that I'm willing to to really go at someone that is probably related to that because it although it's written in an in a non-personalized way you, if you're f- experienced that and grew up with that you can you read it immediately as you're talking about me or you're talking about my family or mm-hmm. whatever um and so that can really get you like fired up and and ready to say stuff that might get you in trouble. Uh, so, you know, that probably has has a lot to do with the, you know, willingness to engage that way. I always thought it was just because I was born without a filter. I don't know. Like I feel like that voice in the back of my head that tells me not to say something like just isn't there. Sometimes I feel like you might struggle with the same thing. Call it call it a blue collar background. I don't know. <laughs> That's true. Well, I think there are studies about different ways of engaging and working class people tend to be more blunt and and more sort of aggressive when they're upset whereas upper class professional types will be more subtle and more passive aggressive and maybe you know work back channels and you know there's there's a whole different way of engaging uh there's a whole different way of disagreeing with one another a whole different way of Mm -hmm. getting what you want that just differs based on occupation and and social class and that sort of thing. And so it can be hard to move from one to the other uh, and need to adjust the whole way that you uh, engage socially. Absolutely. So we're touching on some of the more concrete aspects of the philosophical project of welfare, and we're, we're sort of talking about the, the negative critical view here that 
that you've laid out. But let's let's talk about a positive perspective for in terms of uh, you know approaching welfare policy. And what do you see as the biggest problem on the progressive left right now when it comes to thinking about welfare programs and social spending? Yeah, so there are a number of problems. The the one that I've been focusing on of late is creating a general framework for understanding why welfare is needed and and you know how welfare works in society. I think what we have is we've inherited a whole slate of programs over time and the policy discussion has drifted towards let's tweak them here and there, maybe we'll introduce a new one, etc. Mm-hmm. but all of those discussions, they're disconnected from any general theory of what the welfare state is and what's it, what it's right. about and why we even need to have it. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And so I've been trying to articulate this theory that uh, can be found, you know, throughout history. Welfare writers have, in one form or another, made this point, and that is that, you know, in a capitalist society or even in some socialist societies, perhaps, the national income, by default, is only distributed to people who work and people who own. And there's this whole third class of people, which at any given time could be as many as half the people in society, who are not workers and also do not have large accumulated capital assets that they can live off of. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those people are children, those people are old people, elderly people, disabled people, students, uh, the unemployed, and caregivers. Those are the main six uh, of people who do not fall in either the worker or capitalist bucket. Mm-hmm. And the welfare state is really primarily for those six populations. And if you look at welfare systems throughout the world, even in the U.S., they're about getting income to those six groups of people in one form or another. Um, and I think if you can state that clearly and, and understand that the welfare state is, is a necessity that born out of the way our economic system distributes income, which is to say only to workers and capitalists, not other people, if you can understand it that way, then I think it's a lot easier to make the case for Let's have a really nice, clean, generous welfare state uh, instead of seeing the welfare state as this uh, whole plugging device where people, you know, f- fail or they, they, you know, something like that, where we're, we're trying to, to fix people's failures or, or other, you know, declines from where they should be in society. Right. So you, you mentioned uh, the phrase national income. Um, this is, of course, kind of like a blasé economic term, but in terms of an ideological project, that's a pretty contested notion, right? Because the idea that there e- even is such, such a thing as a national income would be wholly unrecognizable to most folks who kind of have internalized neoliberal ideology, which is to say that, you know, I earned what I earned because I, I produced this wealth. We're the wealth creators, right? Uh, the petty bourgeoisie, the, the owners, uh, those types of people. And so why should I have to pay out uh, to help these people who who are too lazy or too broken or, or, or failures or something like that. So it seems to me that we even have to get over that hurdle just to even talk about something like a national income and after that how we might better distribute that national income. Yeah, that's that's right. I think most people's 
model implicitly, usually they don't think a lot about it, when they think about the economy is, okay, I input some factor, where factor basically means an hour of work or some bit of capital. I in input some factor, and then I get some in income out of it as output that comes directly to me, you know, through a paycheck or through a dividend or whatever. Right. And that is on the first gloss mine. And then from there, the money can get siphoned off for other uses. And yeah, that's probably the way most people think about it. And you have to get beyond that and think about it in a more holistic sense and say that, no, we have productive inputs and then we have output and then that output can be distributed in all sorts of ways, some to workers, some to capital, some for welfare income. It's input and output are not necessarily connected. You're not necessarily entitled to whatever your input produces for the economy. Instead, that's up for society to decide how the productive surplus is allocated among people. Right. So we've covered the philosophical argument that the sort of the, the number one thing we need to do now, it seems, is address one of your recent arguments, which is increase our welfare spending to $15 trillion over the next 10 years. So, so tell me about this $15 trillion number, how you came to it and, 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 uh, and, and how, why, why you argue for that type of, uh, that type of thing. Right. So the, the piece that you're referring to was born out of an irritation of certain costs that people give for programs. So if you read the New York Times or the Washington Post or whatever, they'll say something like, for instance, more recently, Medicaid's going to be cut by $880 billion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, God, that's a lot of money. <laughs> you, right, but, right, but people have no way, what does that even mean? Is that a lot? Is that a little? How do you even contextualize this to get some sense? And so my piece just kind of lays out the way people do this is they take a dollar amount and they just multiply it by 10. So this $880 billion cut is really $88 billion a year. Um, and But even then, it's not, okay, so now we have an annual cost that's a little bit more cognizable, but it's still $88 billion. I don't know, that's, you know... 88 billion more than I make in a year, so it seems like a lot. Um, <laughs> right, right. So the the next the next step is to say, well, let's divide the number by the size of the overall economy, which is GDP. And so if you take 88 billion, that's a little under uh, half a point of GDP. So maybe 0.4 percent of GDP. That that's how much it represents in the whole economy, which mm -hmm. is just really not a whole lot. Um, and then from there, the way I get to $15 trillion is I'd say, let's look at our total welfare expenditure, which is defined as expenditure on housing benefits, Social Security, unemployment benefits, etc. Like kind of the whole thing, except for education, is welfare benefits. Mm -hmm. um, let's look at how much we spend on that, and let's look at how much, say, Denmark or Finland or Norway spend on it. And if you look at the gap between what we spend and what they spend, and you multiply that by the size of the economy and then multiply that by 10, which is the way that all the media covers these sorts of things, mm -hmm. to get up to a Nordic level of welfare expenditure, we would have to increase spending by $15 trillion over the next 10 years. Um, and so the, the point of articulating that is just to say, when, when people are making proposals about welfare spending, just keep that number in mind because that's sort of the 
the upper limit of what you can do, or at least of what we've seen countries do in the world right, uh, right. that have been successful with it. So if someone says, I have this plan to increase welfare expenditure by $3 trillion, and the media is just like, oh my God, this is unbelievable, which they would for something like that. Like They would just be like, this is the sure, most incredible sure. thing. You say, well, it's good, definitely. It's a good step, but it's not crazy it's it would only get us a fifth of the way to to where uh sweden is you know so right so it's about moving the goalposts and and and, and enlarging uh you know what we think is not only possible but what other countries are doing themselves you see sweden here is paying uh is spending 26.7 percent of welfare spending uh as, as a marker of gdp finland's at 30.6 percent GDP for welfare expenditure, and we're down here at 19. So we have a ways to go to get to the, the so-called gold standard of, of spending from the Nordic countries. Right. We have a lot of room, and that's actually very – there's something kind of exciting about that as, as, as miserable as, as it is to live where we are at this point because – there's so much room, you know, if you're in Finland, you're kind of like, man, I we've kind of maxed out. Like We just right. sort of you just keep managing, tweak here and there. Uh, but we, we can, we have a lot of room to do cool and interesting things if we, you know, want to. So what are we spending our, our, our GDP on, <laughs> uh, our percent of GDP in terms of our budget? Uh, that these Nordic countries aren't. Where Where's the wasteful expenditures going on here? I know there's all kinds of corporate subsidies and all these other types of things, military expenditures, but how, where, how would we really sort of close that gap and, and what would have to go? Uh, so we do overspend a little bit on military and police, uh, as you, right, you know, right, might right. expect, prisons. Uh, I Shocker. think the OECD calls it... Uh, like uh, public security or something like that. Uh, very anodyne. Kind of the golden thing, but, gulag, if you will. Right. It's yeah. a it's a positive thing in their in their read of it. But uh, so there's a little bit of money you can get there. I mean, there's a lot of money in defense because defense is a little bit weird because as a percent of GDP, you know, we spend more definitely than the other Nordic countries, but it's not like wildly more. But that's not necessarily the best way to think about defense spending as a percent of GDP because what defense spending about is about is being able to defend yourself against other countries. And so one sure, of the sure. benefits of being a huge country with a big uh, economy is that you don't have to spend nearly as as much a percent of that economy keeping yourself protected because you're, you're just really big. You got a lot of you know people. Uh, mm -hmm. So... But, I mean, generally what you need is you need higher taxes and you need more spending. That's really where most of the money is going to come from. So the U.S. tax level as a percent of GDP is around 26%, and overall revenue is around uh, the low 30s um, because we get some revenue from non-tax sources. Um, and in a place like Sweden or or Denmark, it's in the mid 40s or high 40s. So, it's it's really taxation that's going to get you uh, enough room to to do these kinds of programs. So you address this elsewhere. This is kind of taking a segue back through the philosophical element of it, but I think this is important. Uh, you talk quite a bit about the crushing impact of inequality. A lot of people could look at uh, the poorest individual in the United States and say that this person, you know, still has it pretty well off compared to somebody living, um, you know, in, in a poor part of the of the world or, or whatever else. But you cite James Baldwin 
uh, when it comes to the crushing impact of inequality in his uh, debate with William, William F. Buckley in 1965. And Baldwin characterizes inequality as, uh, as follows. He says, immense inequality is experienced by those on the bottom end of it as a parade of humiliations and feelings of worthlessness. It is an index of domination in society. That income levels in other societies might be lower still does nothing to mitigate that suffering. And when combined with an understanding of the likely performance, or sorry, permanence of that situation for your descendants, there is an experience of hopelessness that is devastating. So one of the, one of the most crushing aspects of inequality in, in the United States is that it is incredibly uh, lasting, uh, generationally speaking. And this is found in uh, the racial gap as well. So I was thinking maybe we could segue there. There are a lot of ways we could sort of go into this debate, but maybe we could just start with the the sort of universal versus reparations element because this really gets to the heart of what welfare uh, from a left wing perspective is really all about. Do you do you have any opening thoughts about that uh, debate between the sort of more particularistic versus universal programs? Oh, in general, I favor universal programs as much as possible. So yeah, I mean there there are all sorts of reasons for it. Uh, they're simpler to administer, they're easier for people to understand, they generally make for better politics, they're more resilient. So, you know, a universal program is less likely to be repealed when you get out of power, um, unlike something like Obamacare, which we've seen has is, is taken a pretty big step towards uh, significant repeal. Um, right. So, there's a lot of benefits to universality, um, and... You know, ultimately, you can offset the, you know, giving money to the rich element of universality through tax policy on the other side. So it's really not a big concern. What do you make of the movement on parts of the left for uh, reparations? Now, that seems to be something that uh, the James Baldwin quote is getting at in terms of this generational inequality. This is uh, sort of as as an index of domination in society and as a way of understanding what racialized oppression in America looks like. Um, I'm of sort of a conf- I'm of I'm of two minds when it comes to the reparations debate. On the one hand, there's no doubting uh, the tremendous gulf in uh, wealth uh, inequality amongst uh, uh Blacks and and most of the other races, I should say, not only just whites, but also those under that fall under the other category, which are uh, a host of other Asian and uh, you know Middle Eastern types of nationalities or ethnicities. But universal programs, yeah, are, are certainly easier to sell. So, what do you make of the reparations debate? Should we just discard it, or or how how do we sort of handle those demands coming from folks that are on our side? So the reparations debate, as as I understand it, is focused mostly on wealth differences. So it's, it's not focused on, you know, we should only provide health insurance, public health insurance to black people or Native Americans. Uh, it's, that's not usually where people go with it because those are basic public services that generally someone who's pro-reparations thinks everyone should have. What the reparations argument is really about is leveling out wealth inequality. The, the, the stock of wealth that has accumulated over the centuries and has mm-hmm. has led to whites, I think the median white having as much as 20 times as much wealth as the median black person, uh, depending on what survey you use. And right, right. yeah, I think that that's, there's a very compelling 
justification for that and and even funnily libertarians like robert nosick wrote a wrote a little chapter about about the arguments for that which are pretty compelling um mm-hmm. i think the 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 real question well i mean if you agree with me that reparations is good the the next question is just what does reparations mean how exactly do you do you do it? What does it look like? Right. Uh, do you do you just impose a white tax and then impose a black benefit, or do you find some more general way to level out wealth in society that has the same effect, but is not maybe explicitly just like a white tax and a black transfer or whatever? Um, so. Right. Then, then I mean, you know, then we get into this nasty business of deciding what constitutes a black person. And then, you know, we will find ourselves really quickly into this sort of uh, this disgusting, dirty business of race science and one drop of one drop of blood laws and, and other types of things. And these are not these are not left wing positions to have. And so, yeah, it, it, the implementation would be very difficult, to say the least. Well, yeah, if it was a specific racial, I mean, you know, courts have for a long time decided what race people belong to. So it's, yeah, yeah, I mean, but yeah, like you said, not necessarily in the prettiest of ways. Um, But I think more generally the the issue is, you know, I I would like to level out wealth just generally in society. I mean, it's not enough that, uh, I mean, getting into a kind of Adolf Reed type position here, it's not enough that wealth inequality is is distributed in a racially equitable manner we want it to be equal and general and so you might as well go for the whole the whole hog and just just trim down wealth inequality overall and and in fact i would say that the leading reparations policy proposal which comes from sandy darity and Derek hamilton Mm -hmm. does this it's just a general plan to level out wealth in society through what he what they call baby bonds and it's there's no explicitly racial component but necessarily any kind of wealth leveling in society is going to be massively net redistributed to uh black people and latino people so right so that's the more revolutionary uh model of reparations uh certainly which would press against the 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 diversity model that that pervades neoliberal society these days where diversity is celebrated for its own sake which is provides a convenient cover for not dealing with poverty or poor folks right i mean there's a way to achieve some kind of racial progress which is i guess not totally meaningless but is really minimal overall and you still have a hugely unequal society even if that inequality is distributed in a racially equitable manner it's, you know it's you you i think uh oh man i forgot i forgot her name there's this great um great um professor who's who's written uh, barbara i don't Bar- remember now barbara jean fields yeah yeah who says yeah. something like you yeah. know uh <laughs> this changes the the color of misery, but it doesn't reduce the total amount of it or something like yes, that, uh, yes. which is, you know. She's full of great quotes. I'm actually trying to get her on the show. She doesn't communicate via email, so I have a carrier pigeon that I've okay. sent that I've sent to, uh, <laughs> to uh, the upper uh, west side of New York, uh, Manhattan, to try to get her on the show. Um, if I can track her down, I'll, I'll ask her about that quote. So we've talked about the, the I think, the most, the most, uh, 
pressing element of inequality in the welfare system in the United States, which is which is the, the legacy of race, right? I mean, I think that I think we'd both agree for sure that that is the most important and pressing, um, you know, legacy that we have to deal with coming out of uh, the history of our country, uh, you know, the history that our country has. But let's pivot away from that for just a moment and let's talk a little bit about education, which education is high on the list of the sort of neoliberal way of managing inequality and, and, uh, and, and welfare uh, benefits. So you have a really interesting sort of general critique of, of education as a way of handling inequality. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the critique is basically that almost everyone who advocates for education as a solution to poverty and a solution to inequality in general, they, they make a, a composition fallacy, I think is the technical term for it, which means what they do is they say, well, people, this person, he got educated, he did much better off as a result. Therefore, if everyone got educated, they would all be better off as a result. Um, and it's, it's equivalent to saying uh, the people who show up to Black Friday on Wednesday and camp out, they get really good stuff. And so if everyone camped out uh, starting on Wednesday, we would all get really good stuff. But like, <laughs> it doesn't work that way because there are positional, there's a positional element to it where what education is doing in part is just giving you better spots on the job ladder as opposed to creating, you know, like we have an infinitely elastic supply of good jobs. If only we could get enough educated people to fill them. That I don't think is, is an accurate depiction of how the labor market works. The, the, the skills gap really plays into that a little bit, the sort of m the mythology of the skills gap, I should say. Uh, right. That, 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 that there's all of these really well-paying, fantastic jobs out there either waiting to be filled or waiting to be created, right, by magic or something. It's just that the people don't have the skills. And so if we got more people into the university system, then, you know, then I don't know. Magic, yeah. Well, right. I mean, if you, those arguments are, are even more interesting because – the way they usually proceed is they identify, yeah, here are some jobs that are being unfilled, and then they just extrapolate out to a mass education policy. But if you ask them, like, how many jobs are you talking about? It's like at most like a million jobs or something. Right. Uh, or, or, and you even see this, who, who's the like dirty jobs guy? Mike Rowe. He, oh, his God, whole shtick is like, we go around and there's, there's 5,000 welder jobs that are unfilled. So if people went into the trades, you know, 5,000, there are 155 million workers <laughs> in the U.S. It's, it's nothing. Um, so there's a magnitude problem that I think they, they fail to grasp the whole system in front of them and like to focus on successful individuals or a few job openings here and there that, that people have a hard time filling. Well, hell, my uncle Larry's got a landscaping business, and he couldn't even find three folks to mow lawns. You know, like <laughs> right, right. It reminds me, actually, there was a. You see this in the in the I don't know. This it's prevalent throughout all kind of economic writing. But there was a piece in Business Insider this week that said, uh, "Meet this teacher couple who retired at age thirty-five, and their weird trick." And you kind of what the hell? And you sort of read through it, and what you found out is they bought up a ton of Las Vegas real estate with really heavy mortgages and then the, the you know housing just went crazy in Las Vegas and they made a bunch of money off of it and you're like well I don't that's not we can't all make we can't all speculate on Las Vegas housing that's not a successful way to run an economy um, 
but it's that kind of stuff where people can't distinguish between individual strategies that work and whether and, and aggregate strategies that work for everyone simultaneously. Right. I mean, we, let's let's not even talk about the you know the the notion that like speculating on property is somehow a social good. Right, like, is that really the kind? Is that really the right. kind of society? I mean, it doesn't, is that like the best we can do? It doesn't you know? increase. It doesn't increase economic output. You just happen well, to, <laughs> to right. just get in at a certain price and get out at a certain price. You didn't add anything. It's just a windfall mm. for you. Um, but those sort of things get blown up, and there's all sorts of BS like self help that's basically based on that on those kinds of models, which are not, you know good social models for how to run an economy. Um, so. so given that education is not the sort of magic bullet uh, that uh, somebody on the West Wing once said it was, who was, oh shit, who was the character, the guy on the West Wing who, who goes on, uh, Rob Lowe's character at one point goes on a, gets on his uh, soapbox about how he believes education is the magic silver bullet of, of success and blah. Like this is the liberal uh, shibboleth, you know, about education. No. So given that education is not the magic bullet, we got to do something about it, right? I mean, public education is failing. We have uh, charter schools and things like that that are failing as well. Um, higher education is in shambles. Folks are sitting around with lots of debt. And so what are the prime policies that are necessary in order to, to fix this problem? So education is not is, was probably one of my darker spots. I, I get in on it because they like to dabble in poverty and, and welfare stuff that they don't know about. And so I kind of pop in there. But, you know, I guess I don't really know a whole lot about how to fix the educational system or anything like that, unfortunately. So let's talk about free higher education then, because you're kind of a numbers wonk guy and you can sort of make these big, these insanely big numbers, you know, more manageable and, and understandable for us. What what kind of what kind of dollar figures are we talking about here for universal uh, higher education and how how achievable is that for us in terms of our uh, uh, you know yearly budget? The numbers I've seen range from if you just do free public higher ed range from fifty billion to a hundred billion a year. Our economy right now is nineteen trillion dollars, so you're talking about zero point seven percent of GDP. It's it, it's the mid-range estimate is basically what we spend on food stamps, um, mm -hmm. which is not a whole lot, frankly. Uh, so the cost issue is, I don't think the cost issue is very, very compelling <laughs> as, a, as a constraint for doing it. It's, it's not an especially costly program. Right. Um, and I mean, you, you can kind of back this out in your own head because how many people are in college at any given moment in time. It's, it's not that many. It's a very small slice of, of the population. So any kind of benefit to them is not going to be that cumbersome. Um, it's the same thing, frankly, with uh, free, free uh, early childhood education or free pre-K or free daycare or whatever. It's, there are only uh, so many two- and three-year-olds in the country. It's not, it just can't be that expensive. No, you know when you provide programs, they're just the demand increases. So these, these two- and three-year-olds will, will begin to multiply magically if you, <laughs> yeah. if you give them free services. Right, right. Yeah, no, they'll, they'll just – once you put them on the dole, they just want to take everything. I think a senator said that today about uh, free health care. So. <laughs> you know those greedy three – you know those grubby three-year-olds out there. You know, they just take, take, take. 
So, so skipping ahead of the education issue, I understand uh, that's not exactly your, your forte, but it's certainly higher ed- universal higher education is something that's achievable. Uh, pre-K, those types of things are well within our budget, and they would have a net economic benefit in terms of allowing folks to spend money in the actual economy instead of paying back student loans until they're 50. Yeah, there's, so there's some evidence on that. People disagree back and forth on the debt burden, but there there is some evidence that points to when students come out with a debt burden, obviously they delay home buying, they delay buying cars, they delay family formation, and none of that's good. Uh, so it can be helpful in that way, stimulative in a way. Um, and, and, and the same thing for, and, and to some degree even more so with sort of uh, before kindergarten, where we also have a gap, right? We have a gap after the 12th grade, and we have a gap uh, before kindergarten. And it's a similar kind of thing. If you were to provide free daycare, you would free up a lot of money for parents of young children to spend uh, in the economy. And you would also make it easier for for them to work, because many of them don't work because they can't afford daycare. Uh, So, you know, there, there are... That if you if you count the second order effects of the of the program, uh, it's not even as costly as it seems on on first glance, which is already frankly not that costly. So, so we're talking about children. Let's talk about the child poverty reduction leg of this policy platform that we're sort of crafting here for the left. Um, you cite a study in one of your recent blog posts uh, from a group of researchers from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and they proposed a universal monthly child allowance to eliminate extreme poverty among families with children in the U.S. So these research estimated that a monthly allowance would reduce child poverty rate by more than 40% and the rate of deep poverty among children by approximately 50%, which would virtually eliminate extreme child poverty. So tell us a little bit about uh, child poverty reduction and how we might make that a reality. Yes, yeah, so children are one of the big six uh, people who do not work and do not own capital. So mm. a good welfare state is going to provide income to them. And I don't know. When I was five, I had a lemonade stand, and uh, <laughs> with 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 those nickels and a little bit of uh, stick to itiveness, you know, I put myself through college. Yeah. Some children do. There are, there are a few <laughs> children who do earn money. It's a funny uh, if you go into like the IRS. Records and you're never really clear. Is this? Are they sheltering money for their parents? Why do their parents? Uh, I don't really know how it works, but you know, some eight-year-olds are are making money and paying income tax, which is little kind of Timmy is uh, little Timmy's <laughs> hiding his father's gambling winnings or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it must be that. Or, uh, but but again, that's really terrible. I mean, IRS is going to be a little uh, going to be looking at that. So, um, <laughs> so I derailed us. So, th- th- tell yeah. us about the child poverty reduction. Yeah, so the most obvious way to fix the fact that children do not get income from the market is to give them income through the welfare state. And obviously you don't give it to them directly, you give it to their parents, but it achieves the same basic goal. So I've been proposing for, I don't know, three three years now, creating a child allowance program where you would just pay every parent $300 a month per child. And that would basically cut poverty in half or 40%, depends on how you want to measure poverty. Um, And it wouldn't be that costly. And um, 
it's a very straightforward program, universal, everyone understands it. And it's also very common throughout the world. So Britain has one, uh, Canada has one, all the Nordics have one, France has one. It's, it's a very common benefit uh, in other countries. And that's the proximate reason why our child poverty is so massive is that we do a very bad job of getting benefits to families with children, unlike more developed welfare states that have very explicit, you know, for every child gets gets a check, you know. So um, right. So so we hide our uh, child benefits insofar as they come at all. We hide them in certain income tax credits, particularly the earned income tax credit. So tell us why that's a bad idea and why the implementation there for getting money to the families who need it the most is off often, uh, you know, sort of a it never happens. Right. So there there are basically seven child tax benefits. Uh, I won't go through them all, but the the basic problem with each of them is that they are related to how much money you earn, such that the more money you make, the more benefit you get from the program up to some kind of phase-out zone for some of the benefits. Some benefits don't ever phase out, but, you know, they will... You get over $100,000 of income and it, it, they'll phase it out for whatever reason. Um, and the problem there, I mean, there are a number of problems there. Seven benefits, impossible for anyone to have any idea what they're getting out of the system, which is not good, both for the politics of it and just for the practicality of you want people to be able to plan, put that in monthly budgets. And a child allowance does that. You know, I'm going to get a 300 check every month. You don't know where you fall on this seven benefit system where they all overlap in confusing ways. I have a hard time figuring out where where I fall, um, and I'm supposed to know these kind of things. So, um, so yeah. So it, it doesn't reach the neediest. It's hard to incorporate into a budget. It's politically stupid because no one even understands they're getting these benefits. And um, it doesn't support um, it doesn't support stable budgeting, which is if you really want to help kids having a stable flow of income that people can incorporate in their budget and say, yeah, I can afford this for my kid, or I can afford daycare or whatever is 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 key to to actually helping material well being, as opposed to our current system where come. April, you get just some unknown random check in the mail and some big lump sum. You know, that's, that's not a good way to maximize the benefit of, of giving families with children more money. Right. I see uh, people on my Facebook feed that I went to high school with who have children, and, and many of them had children at a young age. I see them counting down the days until uh, they can sort of cash that refund check because a lot of these uh, sing- single mothers in particular, particularly like rely heavily on that on that on those uh, credits, you know, but they get them once a year and they never know exactly how much it's going to be. And, uh, it's never as much as they need for sure. Yeah. It's very unstable. And oftentimes it's used to pay off debt that you shouldn't have gotten into in the, you wouldn't have gotten into in the first place if they could have advanced that money to you throughout the year, instead of waiting till the end and just blow, you know, just giving you this big lump sum. Right. It's really silly. It's a lot harder to pay off a credit card. That's best case scenario. Maybe pay off like something at, at a title. Yeah, payday loan at a title yeah. place or whatever else. Uh, it's really wasteful stuff. So I mentioned earlier on the show before we started talking that the reason why I wanted to have you on is because you are opening up a Patreon uh, account. Has had a lot of success, and if if this thing sort of gets uh, catches on, which I think I think it will. 
that you would like to start thinking about producing a grassroots, crowd-funded policy think tank for the left. Um, we've covered a couple a couple areas uh, that you've written on recently, but surely there are others. Um, one of the more philosophical approaches that I like that you've mentioned in other podcasts that I've heard recently is talking about how we need to regroup the way in which these uh, social benefits are paid out and how we sort of conceptualize them in, in terms of like, say the same uh, office that pays out the WIC would also pay out say student loans, for example, or student benefits. If you know, we had free higher education, what would that reorganization at the federal level look like uh, if you could sort of snap your fingers and make this happen? So mostly it's just uh, folding everything into the social security administration, which is the most popular of the welfare administrations. Uh, food stamps is is administered by state-level bureaucrats, so it's different in all 50 states. The mm-hmm. same for Medicaid, the same for WIC, the same for Section 8. Social Security is the only just... The federal government said, we're going to give out checks to old people, disabled people, and widows, and we're going to have our own offices, and we're just going to, we're just going to do it. We're not going to do this state-federal partnership, nothing right. like that. And it's very clear, it's very clean, and people love the Social Security Administration, so that's the easiest, easiest way to do it. Uh, and, of course, you would change a lot of the programs, ideally. So, you know, right now, Social Security, they pay out to old people, disabled people, and widows. But we would also want them to pay out the child benefit, the child allowance, like we've been talking about. They would pay out unemployment benefits. They would pay out parental leave for when you have a kid or have to take care of a elderly or disabled relative. Um, they would pay out that full slate of welfare benefits. And that's how most countries do it. They'll have one social insurance institution. In Finland, it's called uh, Kila. Actually, that's not how you pronounce it, but I don't remember <laughs> now the Finnish pronunciation. But it's just one thing. And, uh, you know... So it seems to me that in the 1930s, when the uh, Social Security Administration uh, was was sort of inaugurated, the federal government was the strongest it had been, uh, perhaps since the end of the uh, American Civil War. Uh, nowadays, uh, the sort of states' rights, the House of U.S. House of Representatives and stuff like that, use these uh, you know state powers as a I don't know as a trump card at the federal level uh, with their cynical political games. How do you think we might uh, sort of develop the political power to, I don't know, to, to empower policies at the federal level again? Because you see what I'm saying. I mean, the way that these, you know, the rep- particularly Republicans really cherish their states' rights, right, in order to, to keep food out of children's mouths. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about how to develop the political power, the organizing and that kind of thing, but it, it definitely needs to be made an issue who administers the program. I think that's something that Democrats, especially moderate Democrats, are willing to compromise very quickly to Republicans because they say, oh, well, who cares? You know, the state will handle it. But it matters a ton because you'll have a state uh, recently, there was a report that the state of Mississippi denied over 99% of people applying to temporary assistance for needy families, which was what replaced the old welfare, AFDC. Um, 
So, uh, so basically, welfare doesn't exist in Mississippi, even though on paper it does. Sure. Um, and then Medicaid, you saw that. A lot of states didn't expand it. So there's this, there's this desire to do these state-federal partnerships, or at least willingness to do them, as olive branches to Republicans. And uh, less people, there, it needs to be a point to say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. That's a way of actually destroying these programs, making them unpopular, making them not work in half the country. You know, like that, that's something that needs to develop as a sticking point for, for Democrats, I think. Right. So we need to take away the bargaining chip there uh, that the Republicans are sort of holding over uh, our heads in terms of being able to, to move these to the states in order to, to claw back all of the benefits. Good. So, I mean, I think we've covered a lot of ground there. What are some of your other projects that you're working on, things that you're thinking about right now, messages that you have for the left when it comes to uh, welfare and social assistance? Uh, you know, in terms of projects, it's that, that think tank. Um, I'm going to try to launch that as a side thing pretty quickly and try to get out some good papers on policies that are currently undercovered. Uh, generally, you know, on welfare and social assistance you know, I don't know that I have a particular message. Uh, we should try to take a step back and, and construct a very good, clean uh, welfare state that is consistent with sort of a framework where we can explain the welfare state, uh, which we talked about earlier. And that's what I hope to do in significant part on this think tank uh, that I'm trying to Patreon for right now uh, is to provide that background maybe we can do animated videos do gra- infographics whatever it takes you know to try to get across a new vision of the welfare state that is not new in the like third way let's modernize <laughs> kind of way but it is new in that you know let's have a robust muscular clear-headed view of the welfare state instead of kind of talk about it in this wincing way where we oh we need the safety net to help people who you know have fallen through the cracks and that sort of bs it's you know we need to to really to hit it hard uh so you know hopefully i can provide the intellectual and, and policy ammunition for that going forward so you're so you're thinking about not only being uh, public facing in terms of producing you know animations and things like that for the public, but do you have any ins right now on any politicians, <laughs> any uh, any up and comers? Are are they hitting you up for policy? Do you have their ear? Are you able to sort of uh, get an in there? I I, I have a few ins that few. I I, sh- I shouldn't talk about, but fair enough, uh, fair enough. yeah, <laughs> there are there are some lawmakers that will talk to me uh, in the back channel. So that's great, that's great. You gotta love that. I just wanted to know how plugged in you were in terms of uh, this budding, uh, you know, cadre of of Bernie types uh, that are that are coming up in the political system. So I have a couple questions for you. I put out the call on Curious Cat. Uh, some of these are fun and some of them are, are more serious. We've covered some of them, but we'll just take another five or 10 minutes here and, and, and get through these if you have the time. Sure. Um, let's see. A bunch of the stuff that we've covered already. God. This is, this is a wormhole, but it's a good one. Kevin DeCock says, uh, what are the merits of UBI versus universal jobs programs? That's a wormhole. Do you have a, do you have a 60 second summary of, of where your thoughts are on that right now? 
Yeah, I don't I don't view them as competitive, uh, mm-hmm. and I know that's like the, the the cheap way out. But but in a very in a very literal sense, pick a side. The, we're at war, you know. Like people are really the, hot about this right now. The, the people who advocate job guarantee, what they argue is that you actually don't have to pay for job guarantee. You can just print money for job guarantee, and the reason you can print money for it is that. The way job guarantee works is it pulls workers off the sidelines and actually employs them. And if you're pulling people off the sidelines and employing them, then you don't have nearly as much inflationary pressure as you would if you just printed money and spent it without increasing the number of people who are working. So, so they, they actually sell it in a way where it doesn't matter. You could print money and, and it's good. Uh, so I, it's literally not competitive in the sense that it doesn't trade off at the marginal dollar, as they would say. Uh, so I've never really understood the clash, uh, except, you know, it's just sort of a tribal thing between people who emphasize different, different things. But they're not, they're not in literal policy competition. Now, that was a very disappointing answer. I, I, we, I would try to be uh, polarizing as possible and just take positions <laughs> for the sake of taking positions here on the well, Dead Pundit Society. <laughs> I mean, it's, I think it's clear that I prefer, I'm more interested in the UBI than the job guarantee. Sure, uh, sure. That's, that's my position. There we go. You, you heard it yeah, here so. first. Matt Bruenig <laughs> is for UBI, and he says, fuck job uh, growth. <laughs> <laughs> so send your hate mail to at uh, Matt Bruenig on Twitter. Uh, I'm just kidding. So no, that that's a very that's a good answer. I haven't heard that before, and it's a, it's a it's a sane way of looking at things. I appreciate that. Let's see what else do we have. Okay, somebody here says Anon asked. Uh, this isn't really a question as much as it's a statement. Liz is fucking hot. Okay. So I guess she's talking about your wife. He or she is right. your wife. So you're apparently thinks your wife is pretty. So. Well, that's good. I mean, I think so as well. So your wife is a brilliant you know, mind herself, I believe. Very, a- very active on Twitter and and, and very smart. She gets ten times the amount of speaker requests as I do, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and she's at the Washington Post, whereas I'm uh, begging for money on Patreon. So you know, I think there's a there's a lesson there. Nothing his, wrong with uh, having a sugar mama, my friend. <laughs> No, but she's great. So yeah, I just wanted to, I wanted to throw that out there. It's a little vulgar. My apologies, but I, I love Liz. I follow her on social media as well, and she just as easily, uh, just as well, could have been doing the show now. Very brilliant mind herself. Didn't want to leave her out. Let's see. All right. Ah, Benjamin Dixon of the Benjamin Dixon Show and the uh, Progressive Army. He says, "Ask Matt why he never paid me for those copies of the Communist Manifesto I loaned him." <laughs> I've met Ben a couple of times, and that is just a lie. That's He's just never factual. loaned me these things, and you can get it for free on the internet. So you know, I don't know why you would even bother to get it in print. And pay I, I for was it, hoping so. there was some juicy gossip here about how you two were <laughs> members of some kind of Trotskyist sect, you know, back in your college days or something like that. No, just know each other from online. No such backstory. Mm-hmm. All right, well, one last question. This is an interesting one. Maybe ask Matt how much he thinks the left should focus on domestic policy as opposed to building international movements. Now, I don't think they necessarily have to be counterposed, but maybe bring in this question of building international movements. Because, I don't know, after Trump, after the failures of Bernie, there's been this kind of uh, shift that I've seen on the left where people are talking about, you know, once again, well, we can't, sort of, we can't sort of focus on the nation. We have to focus on this international sort of working class perspective. I have my own criticisms and thoughts about it, but, but how do you sort of uh, 
How do you sort of play the two off of each other? Uh, I mean, I don't really know how to build an international movement. I mean, the problem is that we do have nation states. That's where government authority is exercised. So, you know, it's hard to have joint demands or joint anything because we need to appeal to our separate governments to, to have things actually happen. So... I think it's useful to have international networks. I know a lot of people in the UK. I know people in the in Finland. You know, I there's I I build networks and and, and that's helpful to in that way. But mm-hmm. a movement where we're all part of the same organization, I think, is is difficult. And I mean, I know that was the the great dream an international workers movement where we could all maybe do a global general strike or something. But it seems. Uh, that seems far-fetched at this point. So I say keep ties internationally, but you're going to need to organize domestically because that's where the decisions are made. Right. And I think the policy perspective that you bring really illustrates that perfectly in terms of like, we just simply, as much as it'd be nice to give up national politics and all the bullshit, you know, we just can't do that because the, the national, the nation state is where, you know, policy uh, is, is decided and, and uh, delivered that affects us uh, so greatly. So that was a good way to wrap it up. Uh, We covered quite a few things. Uh, I've mentioned it several times on the show, but I'll do it again. Go to patreon.com slash Matt Bruenig or just search Matt Bruenig Patreon as I did and you'll find his page. He's bringing in quite a bit of money, but it's nowhere near Chapo money. So I, <laughs> so I know, I mean, let's, let's get this guy Chapo paid. Uh, Chapo is now an, a, an adjective for, you know, you put it in front of something to indicate like how wealthy it is. That's true. It's, it's a unit. It's a unit of measurement. I get that Chapo money, son. You know, that, that makes perfect <laughs> sense. So let's get Matt Chapo money and uh, check out his Patreon, support his initiative. Uh, I hope you all have learned a lot. I certainly have. And I'd like to have you back on the show to maybe discuss some of your white papers and, and some of the, uh, the sweet nothings that you're whispering into the up-and-coming uh, politicians' ears in the future. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks again, Matt. Appreciate it. Thanks. And that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I learned a lot, and I trust that you did too. So, if you like the show, follow us on social media. You can find me on Twitter, at Dead Pundits. That's just one word, at Dead Pundits. You can find me on Facebook. I have no idea what the address is, but go ahead and search for me on the Facebook search feature, Dead Pundit Society. You'll find the page. Go ahead and like it. Follow it. You'll get updates about all the episodes there. Subscribe on SoundCloud. Subscribe on iTunes. All of that good stuff. And one last reminder, if you like the show and you want to support it financially and keep this project rolling, check me out on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash deadpundits. You can become a supporter of the show at $3 a month, $5 a month, or $8 a month. Whatever support you can give, I definitely appreciate it, even if that's only you know telling your friends or, or relatives about this show or whatever the case may be. So, got a lot of really good episodes coming up for you in the very near future. Check us out next week. Until then, have a good one. Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this new crazy mother...